Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, where we take a look at movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris. I am your host. I am joined uh, with my co-host, Andrew. How are you this evening, sir? Well, thank you very much for asking. And we have a very special guest joining us for the first time and hopefully not the last time. Phyllis, how are you? Hi, thanks for having me today. It's our pleasure. You want to give us a just a quick background on you personally? We we went over our personalities in an episode, but just, you know, the uh the the, the highlights. Yeah, I'm a general weirdo. Um I run a debate league professionally. I'm an artist and I have amazing taste. And um so that's I think why I'm here today is I'm very passionate about the whole Dune universe. Um both the, the you know on film, but also I've read deeply into the into the novels by uh, Frank Herbert. So that's awesome. So we're gonna rely on you to do a, some of the some of the heavy lifting on this episode because um, I am a, I'm a huge David Lynch fan. But I was talking to Andrew prior to this. This might be my my least favorite David Lynch movie, but that's just my personal opinion and. Um, I've been wrong in the past, but um, just a quick background. So Frank Herbert originally published Dune in 1965. A cinematic adaptation had been in work as early as 1971. Throughout the 1970s, uh, directors such as Arthur P. Jacobs, Alejandro Jodorowsky, hope I'm not butchering that name, and Ridley Scott were all attached to the project at various times. In 1981, with the right set to expire, executive producer Dino De Laurentiis hired David Lynch. Lynch, who was a hot property in Hollywood, was coming off the success of The Elephant Man. Prior to that, he had directed Eraserhead, which had a cult following but didn't have much mainstream attention that changed with the elephant man which um brought him to the attention of several different projects he was offered by george lucas a chance to direct return of the jedi which he turned down because he said that it was um all a Lucas vision and not his own, which is kind of ironic that he took on Dune, which he was not familiar with, had not read, and basically didn't have an interest in science fiction to begin with. So production of Dune started on March 30th, 1983, with a 135-page script adapted from the novel by Lynch himself. He had worked on previous drafts with Eric Bergeron and Christopher DeVore, but Lynch is given sole screenwriting credit. The budget was approved for over $40 million. 80 sets on 16 different sound stages were constructed in Mexico with a crew of 1,700 people. Uh, the producers were anticipating a Star Wars-like reception and universe to be created with Dune. Toys, games, and comics were all produced. Uh, 
But the film which opened on December 14th, 1984, was a critical and financial disappointment. The last bit of technical that I'll get into before we start discussing the movie in uh, general is that the cinematographer on the movie was Freddie Francis, who was a two-time Academy Award winner award-winning cinematographer who had previously worked with Lynch on The Elephant Man. The film was edited by Antoni Gibbs. The music was by Toto, best known for their Rain Down in Africa pop song. And the movie itself has about three different versions circulating. The most common version is about two and a half hours. There is a TV version which is 186 minutes. It's uh, interesting to note that in this version, David Lynch has removed his name and that the popular pseudonym for Hollywood directors that don't want their name attached to a project, Alan Smithy, was attached to the TV version. David Lynch has declined numerous offers to do a director's cut and chooses not to discuss it, uh, citing this as the only failure in his career and now we're just going to open it up to general discussion um phyllis would you like to start with the actual novel itself if you don't mind yeah um do you have specific questions about it or do you have to just talk a little bit about kind of the energy and vibe of the novel well i guess to kind of get a sense of um, because I was trying to come up with how I would describe the plot of this movie and I couldn't do it in less than I don't know you could write a, doc a doctoral thesis on the plot of this movie um, yeah. but if you had to kind of sum up what the, the, the plot is um, what's, what's like a, a Cliff Notes bare bones version Friday night and I was having this conversation about like what is Dune about to someone who's not uh, who watched the movie but hasn't read the books um, and yeah you're right in that it, it you could write a doctor you could write a dissertation about it um, especially the further you go uh, into this the universe I guess um, but it's set very very far in the future um, like tw I think it's about that in the novels it's like 20,000 years from now is when the dune like when you have like Paul Atreides and um, the Harkonnens uh, you know that's that's 20,000 years from now um, and uh, in some ways we've advanced as a society with our technology in some ways we haven't and specifically um, computers or thinking machines as they're referred to in the universe are uh, considered illegal. So um, as a response, a lot of different types of humans have evolved um, and like you know, really pushed the limits of, of human ability uh, to fill some of the roles that the computers played. Um, the basic plot is that we have this kind of anti-hero hero type, like a brooding Byronic young man, Paul Atreides, and um, he is, you know, set on a course to fulfill his destiny. Um, and the, 
the government structure of this universe is very feudal. There's like lords and then peasants. Uh, so, um, so you know, uh, the more. Uh, oh, and I also will say that there's a lot of like conspiracy and intrigue and betrayal between all the like the ruling class, and that kind of results in um, uh, Paul running away into the desert. Oh, I forgot to even talk about spice. Um, so also the universe runs on this thing called spice, which is only made on this one planet called Arrakis. Is, is it? There's worms on that planet. It's called Melange. Melange, am I correct in that? Yeah, geriatric spice melange. Melange, uh, okay. Melange means spice in French and also a variety of other romance languages. Um, so it's this naturally produce it, produce like occurring thing that happens, like product of Ara- the desert of Arrakis, and um, and uh, it also, you know, how I'm, I'm, how I mentioned that like these humans like play the roles of kind of computers, um, they need the spice in a lot of ways to do that, and so it's like the the whole economy of this universe is based on spice production on this planet and that's the planet that paul goes to to fulfill his destiny um so there's a violent um kind of overthrow of his family um and he is forced into the desert where he meets uh the the i guess sort of indigenous people of iraq is called the fremen uh becomes their leader and then um i don't know what the spoiler deal on this podcast is oh no uh, i should to rise in power um no i i we haven't you, you, in... you can give spoilers and say that last part again so all um you see he becomes the leader of the fremen and then by that he after um the at the end of the movie he becomes in the novel uh the first novel dune he becomes the emperor of the whole universe wow so, and, wow. and he's like 15. <laughs> right. In the, in the books. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he's, and if I can interject, <clears throat> I think he's castrated in the novel, in the book. Am I right or am I wrong? No. He's, he's not, not castrated. Well, for heaven's sakes. Oh, yes. Okay. It's in the Yodorowsky doc- documentary. Uh, they mentioned that, the, that he's, he's actually castrated, and, and so that must be wrong. All right. No, so yeah, in the the Yodorowsky, um and I'm a big Yodorowsky fan, but he was like taken. Yeah, he made up this whole thing about uh, uh, Atreides being castrated. Um, oh, he's not wow. in the novels. Uh, that was his own uh, Of all the things uh, in the novel, he's... of all the things that change, that's a very very dark turn to to kind of take <laughs> your your cat. Your lead character in a sci-fi uh, adventure. It's kind of. And he was going to cast his son, so he was going to be casting his son as a castrated version of that character, the lead character. So, um, to, to those people, uh, uh, let me just catch the if the the people aren't familiar. Uh, as I had mentioned earlier, Alejandro Jodorowsky was one of the directors approached uh to adapt dune and he basically i believe he completed i guess what you consider a graphic novel 
adaptation, and yeah. there is a, a documentary all about his failed attempts to adapt the movie. And um, so I guess that's one of the uh, one of the detours that he took. Yeah, and we can get back on track in a minute, but I just want to say it's it is a very interesting documentary, and they do put together uh, with the with the graphic novel they do put together an opening sequence for his version of what Dune would have been, and it's a remarkable opening sequence, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah, right. You know, Phyllis, you've seen this, you know, right? Yeah, it is. I think it's interesting because uh, I think that the Yordogowski version, I think it attempts to match Dune in, the, in scale because, like, Dune is this, like, you know, series of stories about massive, unimaginable scale, like so, like time and... and um, world building and all of that stuff and i think that that seems to be like a cool thing that yordagaski was trying to do but also it's like this weird like he he like ha half of his son's like childhood was he was raising him to play this role in the dune adaptation so yeah. it's like he was a he was a wacky man um yeah and uh part of me is uh sad that that version of Dune never got made and part of me is also kind of relieved that that version of Dune never got made so <laughs> he was going to have I, I might as well get into it a little bit I, I only have stuff written down uh, that I'm going to read off for this because uh, I, I have stuff off the top of my head as well but I had to write down certain things so I just want to go over the cast that uh, Yedorowski wanted for his version he wanted Salvador Dali who he courted, whom he courted and got a to agree to do it. Orson Welles, Gloria Swanson, David Carradine, Mick Jagger, Udo Kier, Amanda Lear, and he was going to have H.R. Geiger, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, do a lot of the art decoration. So it, it would have been uh, a very interesting movie, to say the least. And uh, uh, we yeah, can... They, he... No, please. Okay. No, no, no. Go ahead, Phyllis. I'm getting used to this whole podcast being interviewed on a podcast thing. Um, but like, um, they also convinced, he convinced Dolly, he made a deal with Dolly to like pay him as the highest paid actor in the history of Hollywood. And that was how he got, he got convinced <laughs> Al Salvador Dolly to agree to sign that's, on. So. That's how he got Dolly to sign on, but that's how he got his movie to never be made probably. Right. <laughs> right. It was some crazy figure of like, dollars for like five minutes of screen time or something right right so i was just going to kind of bridge this into the 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 cast of dune and the reason i usually uh for the podcast run down um the main characters of the cast but dune i there's we would be here all night talking about all the different characters um I guess it's worth noting that this is uh, Kyle MacLachlan's uh, feature film debut, and um, along with him, there's Patrick Stewart, uh, Sting, Virginia Madsen, uh, who I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting dozens and dozens of people here. Um, but it's Chris, you're breaking up a little bit. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. You're breaking up a little bit. Nope, that's fine. Just let me know if that that happens with the uh, still. Go over, go over the cast again. Okay, so um, 
what we usually we usually I usually go over the uh, the the cast and characters of of the movie that we're discussing, but for Dune it's particularly difficult given the vast amount of different characters and actors that are that are involved in the film. Uh, it's worth noting that the I guess our protagonist, our lead, our anti-hero, Paul Atreides, is portrayed by Kyle MacLachlan, which was his fil- feature film debut, and uh, was his first of many co- collaborations with director David Lynch. Uh, other actors involved in the project are Vi- Virginia Madsen, Patrick Stewart, and uh, l- vocalist and bassist for the Police. Sting, and uh, I'm forgetting dozens of people here. Uh, anyone want to fill in with some of the other the other characters that are uh, are are I would say a more important play a more important role in the um, movie. Let's see. Jose Ferrara. Jose Ferrara is the emperor, if I'm correct. Um, Francesca Annis plays uh, Kyle McLaughlin's mother. Um, geez, that's all I can think of off the top of my head. Phyllis? Oh, I see this is, I don't usually like, um, know how, like I try to avoid knowing how the sausage is made when it comes to films, but I do want to say my favorite performer is Alicia Witt, who played Alia, um, the creepy little girl Alia, so I think she did great on that, so... She is genius. She is genius. (laughs) Every moment of her in the movie is genius. The way it's filmed, the special effects. I mean, it just, she packs a wallop. And she packs a wallop at the end of the movie, which is saying a lot because it's all been leading to this, you know? Hey, I'm going to be her for Halloween this year. That's my plan. That's awesome. Sean Young is in this too. She plays one of the indigenous people on the planet planet of Spice. I'm not very good at remembering these the names of these planets and uh, tribes and characters. Um, Fremen uh, and it's Arrakis, also known as Dune. Ah, yeah. very good. Did, did you have you just as a side note, Phyllis? Have you seen the home movie that Sean Young made uh, behind the you know behind the scenes while filming Dune? No, I have not. Yeah, it's it's very short, about ten minutes long. It's on YouTube. You can watch it, and there is oh. a point. Yeah, and there's a point at the end of it where she's across the cafeteria from David Lynch, and she's filming him just eating, and he's just looking at his plate, looking at his plate, and she says. Uh, that basically halfway through filming, she got the impression that he was not going to be able to make uh, the movie that he wanted or a remarkable, a really remarkable movie, a great movie, I think she says. So there was was a turning point, a turning point for David Lynch during the filming of that. Yeah, I get the sense he kind of like rage quit on the whole Dune thing. And I think... (laughs) I mean, like, thinking about, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, but I think, um, I think he, he was, he, the expectation was, like, that June was, you know, the 1984 June was going to be, like, an adult Star Wars, right? But what your source material are here is a really intense, 
like ideologically really neutral psych like psychedelic sci-fi um, world and it's a very strange world right um and a very rich and deep world and then you have um I'd like inherently subversive filmmaker like David Lynch and you put these things together and you're expecting something as mainstream as Star Wars like that's a recipe for disaster and you know 30 years later we're probably not doing the math but like yeah I'm 38 came out in a thir- yeah so 37 years later you know I rewatched Dune last night and I think it's it's me there's like some there's some kind of mastery in it. Um, and there's an absurdity that I wish David Lynch could lead into a little bit instead of feeling so embarrassed about it or defeated about it. Though I imagine the process was frustrating. He, he said it was three years that were, that basically was a nightmare for him. Uh-uh. Working on it. So yeah. I just wanted to comment that you, uh, Phyllis, you were describing the source material and how it's psychedelic and it's vast and it's rich. And David Lynch initially wanted to shoot Dune in black and white. Like he had shot Eraserhead and like he had shot The Elephant Man. Which I would say is an immediate red flag to any producer working on such material. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think... I, I think black and white is, is beautiful, and in certain movies it certainly works. I just don't think that a, I, I don't think that the something like Dune would work as well if shot in black and white. Um, but then again, um, you know, it wasn't my movie. But I could see that would be an initial red flag to me as a producer. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I I just want to take a minute to to comment on the aesthetic um, qualities of Dune, and when I say that, I mean the the combination of Dino De Laurentiis, uh, actually it was his daughter, but him as well, and David Lynch being thrown together. I can't imagine two different, more more different aesthetics. De Laurentiis had done, basically, in my opinion, a lot of kitsch. I mean, that's what he's known for. And it's not that it's not beautiful to look at. But in, in my estimation, I find it very kitschy. And then you've got someone like David Lynch, who is, you know, a enfant terrible, avant-garde filmmaker, um, handling that kind of money, that kind of production, those production values, and that kind of look, basically, an aesthetic. And I, had, I liked how it ended up. I actually really, really dig how Dune looks and feels. I do feel that universe, and I do feel both of those uh, influences, you know, very prominently in its aesthetic, the producers and the directors. So I, I ended up really thinking that they succeeded with that aspect of it, at least. Yeah, I agree, and I, I would counter that I think some there is something very kitschy about David Lynch. Um, you know, even if we talk about the eraser head baby, there is some real, uh, I, I don't know if it's, it's definitely not surface level, but I think in all the horror and grotesqueities that, grotesquity a word, I don't know, but all, everything grotesque about David Lynch, there is like an undercurrent of like 
absurd kitschiness to it. And I, I, I would say that aesthetically, I think, uh, I really agree that I love the 1984 Dune. And I love, um, one of the things people comment on the, a lot on is the guild navigators. And, like, they're, like, kind of, like, testicle fish and, like, those big weird guys that, you know, change, that, like, can move move ships through time. I thought that that was a great interpretation of, um, you know, taking D- David Lynch's aesthetic of the grotesque and, like, kind of puppets and, and putting that in the Dune universe was, like, a real strong element, I think, for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of one of the criticisms of the of the movie is the pacing, which I have found to be my biggest issue with the movie because it initially starts out with about five minutes of Virginia Madsen's face feeding me like a huge exposition dump, and it's not like the scroll text in Star Wars that um lasts about thirty seconds that you read and you're kind of caught up we're basically given a huge exposition dump and like about two minutes in her face fades away and then she fades back in and goes like oh wait I also forgot to tell you blah 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 <laughs> and to me it's just like and I understand why they, why they put this in because if you're just thrown into Dune without any um uh, any knowledge of the source material you're going to be completely lost and on opening weekend movie theaters actually had kind of like a uh, a card printed out with with terms uh, uh so you would you would know what you you know if something was referred to in the movie you could refer down to your card to so you would have a reference point to me which is kind uh, of a little Yeah, it's like it's like Yeah, your 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 cheat your cheat sheet so you know what's going on. And so I think it's the pacing because like I said, the huge exposition dump in the beginning then it gets kind of slow, but I have to say that by the ending I'm very invested in the movie and I enjoyed it and I really like like the last I would say the last third of this movie is just absolutely amazing. Um but I think that speaks to what the failure of this movie is mm-hmm. is that you're trying to cram way too much into one movie. And this I I know that the the new Dune is out and it's it's doing very well. It's getting very um, it's being very well received by critics and audiences. Uh, it's going to be released uh, worldwide theatrically later in October. Uh, but they wisely decided to to they knew off the bat that they couldn't do this all in one movie. This was going to be at least two movies, and I think that's a very smart decision. Wait. So you broke up a little bit. They're they're actually doing. Huh, Phyllis, how many books are there in Dune? There are seven, I believe. Um, seven that uh, Frank Herbert wrote, and then there's additional ones that are uh, most people don't consider canon because his son wrote them based on dubious notes of Frank Herbert's, and they're apparently not a very good quality. Um, yeah. 
So there are, but the Dune novel itself is broken up into two books, like two parts. Like so is that is that the original structurally. novel? Okay. Yeah. And so for this new version, they're doing the first book, whereas back in 1984-83, they tried to cram both books in? Correct. Yeah. So it's, it's the same, like, physical book. It's just two parts, essentially. But, yeah, they... The 20 minutes longer than the 80s Dune, than David Lynch's yeah. Dune. So we're, well, they're yeah. getting into it. They're really getting into it, it looks like. And then, it, yeah. It's so, I, again, I mentioned scale. I cannot overstate how large the scale of the Dune universe is. And so that's why when uh, Jordagowski was talking about doing like a 12-hour film, and even David Lynch um, wanted much longer. Like, I think, so if you talk about the pacing of the 1984 film, um, I think that the David Lynch's plan initially was for it to be much, much, much longer. And I think maybe two parts, and even those parts were going to be substantial in length. Um, and I think that because of studio, like the constraints of the studio, and they were not interested in like a very series of very long movies, um, he had to go kind of to the inner monologue kind of strategy, which is like um, a very unique kind of stylistic choice within... Uh, the storytelling of Dune 1984, and I really like that. Again, we go to the kitschy kind of aspects of that film, and I, I really, really like that. Um, but I think it's—I think that um, it—it's—it's it's so dense and large of a of a story that you know, giving it a full four hours or five hours is really what's needed for that first book. Um, and I'm yeah. excited that the new Dune series is going to do that. Um, and I think it might address some of the pacing issues that don't you don't feel that those pacing issues when you're reading the novel. You okay. like you're brought with along, you know, um, with the narration. So, and are the battle sequences? I'm just curious. Are the battle sequences um, like explained and mapped out in, in detail in the books? Do you have uh, like a whole chapter on a battle? Not, not the way like fantasy books have it. It's not like a Tolkien battle or like a George or R. R. Martin kind of style battle. There is like descriptions of battles, but it's not. I don't think that that's. And I think in some sci-fi fantasy novels, that's the real focus of the narrative. And I don't think Dune that's the focus so much. Well, I felt this. I felt kind of a a, stru a conflict. I'll say. Um, in the in the movie when it came to the battle sequences when the first one came uh, the first one I think was pretty much an hour into the movie and I, I started to lose what was going on for myself at least uh, and then once that battle sequence was over I was able to get back into the plot the final battle sequence I was uh, emotionally and you know intellectually invested I understood what was going on 
but um, it it it's you know the the struggle the conflict that I'm talking about is like you know trying to set up a narrative and then it's like you have to have the battle sequence you know an hour into the movie you got to have another one half an hour later that kind of thing uh, and and, yeah. and I could tell in the editing that there there was there was stuff lacking probably scenes a lot of build up there are a lot of deleted scenes on on YouTube I found and I know that yeah it was David Lynch wanted four hours and four hours never really there was never a four hour cut that was put together uh, unfortunately he won't do it uh, a director's cut of it but that would I would definitely definitely watch a four hour cut of Lynch's Doom I would pay money to watch that. I'd be so excited to see that. Because I, I really love the 1984 Dune, even though I think it isn't a great adaptation of the source material. I think that there's there's just a weirdness and an abs- absurdity to it that um, that I'd love to see more of, of, of Lynch's vision of, of the universe. Um, yeah, so the, the first battle is, I think that's when the Harkonnens come to take back... Um, uh, you know the the castle uh, where where Paul and his dad and his his mom are all you know there, um, right. and then that results in Paul fleeing to the desert. And that right. um, I think again in in the novels it does make a lot more sense, like what's happening and why it's happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is it just me or is it no like weirding way? Wait, say that again. Like not. The weird, it's like it's just funny watching the the choices David Lynch made to kind of adapt the novel. Where like this whole idea of a weirding way is like a, it, that's very different than in the novel. Um, there's no there's no controlling. There's the voice. You know when like the Benny Gesserit and Paul like put that weird voice on. That's in the novel, but not con- like blowing things up with your voice. And you know the the kinds of weapons and. Are, are different, um, and the way they engage in battle are different. So that all came from David Lynch's head, pretty much, because he wrote the screenplay as well. Yes, he... Yeah, like the cat milking thing, that's not in the book, that's a David Lynch thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's, um... Uh, the heart plug, the heart, heart plug is a David Lynch thing, that's not in the book. So how were they, how did they die in the book? He died very similarly. Um, like Huey trays them, Dr. Huey, and then um, he puts the fake tooth in Leto Atreides, and then he, you know, Leto Atreides has a failed attempt to kill the Baron. That's like all straight from the book. But um, the little weird David Lynch touches are not like there. Um, the tooth of Sappho, you know, like um, the Mentat, like a Pieta or whatever. That's not as present in the book. That's a thing, but it's not like every mentat has red lips from the juice of Sappho. I I have a. Yeah, right. It looks like it looks like a herpes outbreak. <laughs> it's gross. I I have a question. A better a particular. I have a question, Phyllis. And he is kitschy too. You're right. <laughs> um, I have a a question. One of my one of my favorite scenes in the movie, uh, in the first part of the movie, is the kind of um training battle practice between Kyle McLaughlin's character and Patrick Stewart's character? Chris, you're breaking, Chris, you're breaking up. Try and fix it. You have a new mic, and repeat what you just said. Can you hear me now? 
Yeah. Okay. I had a question for Phyllis about the um the scene where Kyle MacLachlan and Patrick Stewart's characters they're kind of uh they they do this weird thing where they kind of turn into like Tetris shapes almost to uh to practice sparring. Uh, is that a, a is that a Lynch thing or is that a a, a Frank Herbert thing? That's a Herbert thing. So in the book, first of all, that's the scene of my favorite line in the film, which is moods. Moods are for cattle and love play. That's like my favorite line in the whole in the whole movie. Um, that Patrick Stewart says. Um, I have a pin. I made a pin that says that on there because it's so funny. Um, but um, so there, those are the shield belts, right? They're basically shields that um, are on a belt, and that's part of the in- interesting like you know, future technology envisioned by fake Herbert, that it's like this personal shielding. I think that aesthetically that it looks so cool in the 80, in the 84 Lynch movie. And I think that he did a great job envisioning that. Um, and it has a lot to do too, with some mythology about, um, the desert, like, um, well, not mythology, but like kind of like infrastructure, I guess, about like limitations of battles is because the, because the shields, vibrate you cannot use them in the desert so put like narratively places constraints the um the vibrations bring the worms right so you can't wear them in the desert or like a worm will definitely come and eat you right away right so um yeah that puts us in ours in some ways and then like and then you know with their limitation and taboo on like thinking machines like way so like feudal and old-fashioned in a lot of ways and the, yeah. the further you get into Dune and like the Dune Dune lore, um, the more it becomes clear how biological a lot of their um, technology is. So you know, like a thopter. Do you guys want to know what what makes a thopter go? Absolutely. <laughs> tell, tell us. So it's a giant mollusk that is being shocked by electricity, in and that's the engine of the thopter. And it's called a heart mollusk. So is... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Is this is this like the controlling ground zero of all kingdoms in Dune that we're talking about? Is it, um, that, thing that, is it that thing that floats in the tank in the movie? No, that's... That's the third stage navigator. Um, that's a human that... Um, has been has evolved to become hyper responsive to spice, and they live in like capsules that are like little like kind of like tanks that are just pumped full of spice gas. Right. Um, and because the only um, the only way for them to do the thing where they are able to see through time to tell the ship to go where it needs to go is that they have to be so unbelievably high on spice and that's like and that's part of like that whole idea of like humans evolving to play the role of computers and when it comes to guild navigators what they're doing is they've evolved to to use the kind of psychic ability that spice gives you to like be able to control uh like space and time um in a very limited capacity and their bodies evolve to kind of um I don't know, like adapt to like floating in spice gas and 
Um, in the book, they're described as like very fish-looking humans, but they are humans genetically, just on a di- weird, different evolutionary path. Could we talk a little? Uh, I what did you want to say? Because I, I can I can riff on this, Chris. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so uh, there is there is quite a lot of uh, th- I find a lot of this very relevant today. Uh, the the idea of transhumanism is be, becoming a, a, a forefront. Um, there's a push for transhumanism these days that kind of wants to merge the human with the computer. Uh, and I can't help but take note. Also, there's when I when I when I think of spice, um, there's also something called adrenochrome. I'm not going to go into it in detail here. But it's worth looking up and it's worth researching. I thought that was a myth. Say again? I thought that was a myth that, like, Hunter S. Thompson perpetuated. No, unfortunately, it's, unfortunately, it's not. The reality of it is, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of, there's a lot of quote, debunking, unquote, probably, online about it. But if you really look into it, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty real and it's, it's pretty horrific. Um, and I don't, I don't. I don't want to associate spice with it because spice is an organic substance within the context of Dune. But I can't stop thinking about the the, the similarities because with uh, with what I mentioned, there is a lot of psychic abilities that are supposed to accompany, along with other benefits that is supposed to accompany it. So it's 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 pretty wild. I also this is a good point, and I am going to read this off a of page. So just bear with me. This is a good point to to talk about or to read off what Fritz Springmeier, who wrote Bloodlines of the Illuminati, says about Dune. And he says this much. He says, an ex-Illuminati years ago, back in 1992 it looks like, went page by page in the Dune novel and highlighted for Fritz Springmeier the passages which portray the Illuminati called the Imperium in the novel. The Dune Chronicles were made into a spectacular four-hour motion picture. Well, we just talked about that, not, not really. Which reveals how the Illuminati function, their secret breeding programs, human broodmares, witchcraft, pop and syrup ceremony, generational power transfers, long-term plans, as they say, plans within plans with plans within plans, mind control, love of hand signals, internal ceremonial gladder, gladiator duels, ritual blood drinking disguised as a freeman ritual and and backstabbing um it also it goes on to talk about how let's see the mothers of darkness and the sisters of light are transparently disguised as reverend mothers and sisters of the benet jesuit which sounds like jesuit which is um which is a lot of people in conspiracy land talk about the Jesuits. So I kept hearing that, the Jesuit, and thinking Jesuit just like Fred Springmeier did. Um, in one part, yeah, in one part, um, to Imperial cloning, which in real life is better known as monarch, pro, monarch mind control, uh, the mother says, I exist only to serve. One of the actual mind control programs, the creation of program self-induced Catalepsis, catalepsy defined as a trance-like state, is mentioned in the book and the film. Uh, another aspect of the mind control are double binds seen in the Boo, where a sister says to the queen mother, I love and hate you. Um, 
and the reverend mother must combine the sedu seductive wiles of a courtesan with the untouchable mis majesty of a virgin goddess holding these attributes attributes in tension so long as the powers of her youth endure so that duplicity that uh, duality is a better word is very prominent within the elite bloodlines and the way they the way they the way they think, the mind control that they inflict on each other, basically, and on themselves. So once again, we're diving into territory within Dune that um, speaks volumes about, um, you know, another another world that could exist within our own, even. Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, responding to that, I think what's very interesting about Dune is that it is very, um, it, you're able to. Um, kind of see your niche things that you kind of identify patterns in, um, and I in, I think that everyone can kind of do that to some degree in Dune. It's it's pretty like I'm a so I'm very much a leftist, right? And mm -hmm. I take a very anti-imperialist like um it, like anti like definitely see like some of the correlations between like the the petty games played by oligarchs and then like the Fremen as this working class hero. Like I think that you can project your own like belief system on Dune because at its core it's really ideologically pretty neutral. The later books I would say get really uncomfortably horny and anti-feminist in a lot of ways so I kind of, I didn't I, I still haven't read the last book of the Herbert series because I was just like oh this is annoying. It's just like an old man writing about young women having sex. So um, but uh, the earlier, I think, novels are very interesting in how they uh, reflect and they almost like are like a mirror. So whatever we're looking at when we look at Dune, like we'll see reflected back on us. Wow. Very interesting. So you think, and also you think that as he got older, he just kind of became more of um, a dirty old man, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. I mean, like, I think, so of all this year in the series, I would say I was really, I wish that I had stopped reading at the end of God Emperor, which is like definitely a really amazing, would have been a, an amazing conclusion to um, the universe. I read a little bit of Heretics, or I read most of Heretics of Dune, and then it just started, like there's like warrings, like the Benny Gesserit, like, you know, it's like different like male sex cults have kind of evolved and are like competing with each other, and I... I said I should stop reading now before I hate the whole universe because, um, yeah. yeah. But, um, and that's a major spoiler of the whole series of Dune. But, um, and I think commenting on the, the names of Benny Gesserit um, and, like, um, Jesuit, right? Yeah. Is another interesting thing is, like, the theology of Dune. Um, and the more you kind of go into the novels, more that becomes, like, informed, I guess. Uh, but one of the coolest things is that it, it is this, like, weird amalgam of language, um, like, religious language from all different kinds of theologies across the contemporary, like, globe now, it's like, earth now. So you, so the Fremen, like, the word Moadib, um, which is what the, they call Paul Atreides, and, like, as the, like, the Messiah word, um, is an Arabic word, and I think it means teacher. So there's, oh, wow. like, strong Islamic elements to the faith of Dune, the theology of Dune. There's also, um, they reference in the novels the Orange Catholic Bible all the time. So basically what you've, like, had, you know, you end up with is this 
super distilled world religions unifying theology in the world of Dune. Because remember, it's 20,000 years in the future, right? So all these, you know, the Abrahamians have like kind of fused and, and become distilled and distorted over time. Wow. I, th- I think it's really interesting just go, uh, to uh, comment on that is that you can uh, you can see all these different uh, religious aspects or beliefs throughout the series throughout the movie but also you could you can put on dune for a child and I think they would find it visually entertaining enough even if they didn't dive into some of the deeper, more philosophical components. It would traumatize a child, Chris. <laughs> not, yeah. ne- not necessarily. I, I grew up in the 80s and I was watching messed up shit. Yeah, no, I'm traumatized <laughs> by certain scenes in Dune. When he, when he, like, when he, like, molests and kills that young boy man, um, that's traumatizing. I can't watch that, actually. I have to turn my eyes away. I would, I would definitely... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Would have definitely been grossed out by like the boils and and of the Baron as a kid. It would have grossed me out. <laughs> it's it it stresses me out too because he has to take on so much and go through so much and the journey, the journey that our protagonist tell tell again the name of the protagonist, the Kyle McLaughlin character. That's Paul Atreides, also known as Usul. That's his tribe name, and then um, known as Moadib, which means, in the movie, it means uh, uh, mouse shadow on the second moon. <laughs> I love it. And, now, I have a question about the, in the novel, did they... Wait, 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 let me finish, hold on, Chris, let me finish my thought with that. His journey is is so remarkable, uh, it's it's extremely intense. It reminds me of like an ayahuasca ceremony, uh, it, the way all he has to go through within himself. That whole little monologue about fear—that fear is the mind killer—is a brilliant. Ah, brilliant... uh, the litany against fear. Yeah, I actually, yeah, I, that's amazing. Yeah, you know what? I have it written down, so let me just roll it off real quick. Sorry for reading all of these things off. But the, that little blurb, that little monologue says, fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. It's, it's amazing. It's truly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Go ahead, Chris. I was just uh, going to ask about the tribal names. I, I'm guessing that they go into more detail about that. I just found that scene very odd. He just like randomly just yeah. kind of like out of the blue chooses his tribal name. And it just seemed like so it just seemed like a, like a non sequitur in the movie. It just it just kind of happens. And I was wondering if there's more uh, th- yeah, it- thought behind it in the novel. Establishing the like ritualistic and uh, cultural practices of the Fremen. So like every Fremen has like a name for that he uses with his family, and then 
Um, so in the novel, that's Usul, which is means base of the pillar. So, uh, so yeah, it's it doesn't feel as weird and non like a non sequitur as it does in the movie. Where like your name's Usul, and then you get to pick a name. Um, it's a lot more developed in the novel. I think that's just a small example about how how rich and and deep that the material is that it, it seems in hindsight kind of ridiculous to think that you could squeeze it all into a two hour movie. Um, I know uh, David Lynch had said that he wanted at least four hours and I, I'm hoping that the new movie um, and it's not a particular sci-fi is not my, my favorite genre, but I am a big fan of the director uh, Denis Villeneuve believe that's his name um who's directing the new dune so i i am optimistically excited to see his interpretation of the material um but i i i also wondered that he's he hasn't done too many big movies and i and i'm wondering if he's gonna and kind of encounter the same problems that i think david lynch encountered that he had been coming off two I mean, Eraserhead was was a very small project. Elephant Man was a, a larger budget project. But to go from those two projects into something like Dune, uh, that seems like a lot to bite off and then chew and swallow. Yeah, and he would he would tell. Um, you I'm, I, yeah. Go ahead. Um, I, what were you going to say? Yeah. Are you there? I'm here. Phyllis, let, me, let us know when you're back on. We can't hear you right now. Well, I'm here. Oh. Okay, go ahead. Because I got confused. Oh, I thought oh. we were supposed to talk. Right? I, <laughs> and then I said I should shut up. Oh, we were asking you what you thought about uh, David Lynch tackling something like Dune after only having two relatively small projects under his belt. You guys want to hear my opinion about David Lynch in general? Please. Yes. Oh, Absolutely. Okay. Tear him a new so, one. I, I, you know, when I was younger, I really, really loved David Lynch. Like, deeply loved David Lynch. Um, and I actually remember, Mr. Zio, uh, you were the first person who introduced me to David Lynch when I was in high school, and you were watching a race I had because I was friends with Chris's brother, um, and he was like the cool, older, like sibling of your friend, you know. Um, I, I, I'm still that. You know, I'm an artist. Yeah, you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Cool, And I like love David Lynch, and that's kind of like a requisite. But the older I got, the more um, uh, I feel I almost felt like that David Lynch is an indulgent filmmaker, and that's kind of I know all artists are indulgent, but like his um, fix, he like really likes being myopic to the viewer, and that's part of his whole thing. And, and not myopic, but like uh, obscure. He's like obscure, and his meanings aren't. So, um, and viewers understanding his meaning aren't so important as his own process, and and that's kind of where I see him at now. 
that being said, I think that Dune and also the first season of Twin Peaks, which is when David Lynch was forced into constraints, creative constraints, to become accessible, whether it's through because you're making a network television show or it's because you are using someone else's like weirdo source material, are my favorite parts of David Lynch as a filmmaker. So, um, I, you know, I, I can see now the math of Dune, especially having read the novels and like looking at the pieces he tried to connect. Um, like even he like there's there's a thousand references to other parts of the Dune world in the 1984 film Dune that if you hadn't read the novels you would never understand. Like that that uh, opening soliloquy by Arulian, that's like every chapter starts with a piece of Arulian's histories in the novel. He mentions like weird planets that don't come into play until much later in the the story about like Ix and like Ixians developing technology. That's a reference in an early scene um, when uh, they're at the the Emperor's Palace, um, and that has no bearing on the movie, but it, it is a reflection of the world. And then, and so I think in general, like I love David Lynch when he's like not loving what he's doing for whatever reason. That's when I like David Lynch the most. I was going to say, I, um, I'm sorry. I always interrupt you, Chris. Go ahead. I was just going to say that I, I think it's interesting that one of the criticisms, uh, leveled at Dune is that David Lynch is incapable of adapting somebody else's work. And I, I, I just find that to be terribly untrue given, especially given what you just said about, he might not have initially been interested or familiar with the material, but the fact that he's referencing stuff from a book he's not even adapting, uh, clearly he did his homework for the material. And I would just say that yeah. Wild at Heart is a really good adaptation of a, of a novel. And I think it's one of my favorite David Lynch movies because like Phyllis, he's he's also he needs someone to rein him in sometimes. And I think that's something that the De Laurentiis family did with Dune. And I think that um, Mark Frost and the uh, um, the network did with the first episode, uh, first season of, of Twin Peaks is they kind of they kind of they kind of took his weirdness and made it a little bit more digestible for uh, more general, uh, more general consumption. They kind of took like, um, they kind of made it, uh, I hate to use the metaphor, but they kind of made it like the fast food, David Lynch, like the eat more. That's <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, so I think it's more about, it's, I think it's more, I think it strengthens it. I think, I think David Lynch on his own, and you can, you can as evident in the like um, the new Twin Peaks series, right? Is self indulgent and obscure to the point of failure. Like, to me, it does not work. Like, it is not a piece of media. It's not an accessible at all piece of media, and it's not like it doesn't do the job media is supposed to, uh, like a television series is supposed to do. And I think that, and, and it's not like I, I, it's not that I don't get it. It's just designed to be not for you to not get it, right? And so I think that um, that having those people that push against David David Lynch's like creative indulgence strengthens his work. I think it makes it more nuanced, it, it makes it smarter. 
Um, and I, and I, I wouldn't say it makes it like fast food. I'd say it makes it like a more refined, like a digestible meal. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go on record and just just say that that was the worst metaphor that I've ever come up with in my entire life. I was just thinking off the top of my head. <laughs> David Lynch is not fast food. David Lynch fast food. <laughs> go through the drive-through and get your David Lynch to go. <laughs> get your get your Dennis Hopper, uh, uh, you know, get your Dennis Hopper action figure. So. Thought <laughs> of that. Your right, dentist. So I, <laughs> I have to say that Phyllis David Lynch has actually said this himself. I watched several interviews with him to prepare for this podcast, and there was one interview where he actually did say that. He said it helps when I have um, a team that is giving me. I think he used the word constraints. A team that is giving me constraints within my project, within my work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's interesting yeah, to. Yeah, I would. I, I'd say that's valuable. Uh, it's interesting to note that Dune is the only movie that uh, David Lynch did not have final cut on. He technically didn't have final cut on uh, The Elephant Man, but Mel Brooks basically gave him final cut of the movie. Like the both of you had mentioned, I, I now reflecting on it, I'm very curious to see what a more fleshed out, if we were given another two hours, you know, break up the movie into two different movies, a, a, a real chance for David Lynch to to almost do like a Twin Peaks kind of thing and just really flesh out the world of Dune. Um, and I think that's kind of why the movie just kind of misses in, in some points because it feels like it's incomplete in a way. It feels like that. There's there's parts missing. There's there's parts of character development that that seem to be lacking, and um, it, it, I, it's a kind of I could see why he considers it a failure, and I could see why he doesn't want to do a director's cut of it is because they would never allow him to do what he would want to do with a director's cut is probably film two more hours worth of footage, and that's just not going to happen. I I don't I don't think that's the reason though. I think they would let him do a four hour cut of whatever he wanted to do with it. I don't think he wants to revisit it. No, he's, he said it would be too painful yeah, to revisit. I, yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, it's painful. an emotional thing. Yeah. It was very difficult for him. He spent three years of, of basically a nightmare. It was very difficult for him to make do. And he didn't, and I think it did... What, in the Yodorowsky documentary, he talks about he wasn't going to see the David Lynch Dune and his son said, we, we are warriors, we need to go see this and see the movie that we never got to make. And Yodorovsky says that he, he's watching it scene by scene and he's getting happier and happier because it's, it's bad. He thinks it's a bad movie. Yes. He's thinking to himself, he's thinking to himself, but David Lynch is a great artist, so it can't be the director's fault, it has to be the producer's fault. Uh, he I found that very... Yeah, Yodorowsky said that if he wasn't going to adapt Dune, that the only other director that was able to do it would be David Lynch. And he was actually jealous of Lynch. And, um, yeah, his sons were the ones that actually dragged him to the movie. And that jealousy kind of turned to relief as he watched it because he realized it was a failure. And he realized that, I think he realized that if he had done an adaptation, he probably would have faced similar restraints 
from the producers. And yes. Yeah. I thought I thought the the Dolorentis team gave him carte blanche. I thought that they were kind of like do whatever you want and that was kind of the problem. That that Lynch didn't have much uh uh um construct to work with. So you know, or form so or structure. Dino De Laurentiis was just the executive producer, which means he didn't have a lot of like the hands-on day-to-day um, input on the movie. That was handled by his daughter. And I questioned some of the things about his daughter based on one story from her herself. When they were trying to come up with the, the blue eyes for the people on the Dune planet, um, they weren't sure how to do the effect. They were thinking maybe we'll do contact lenses or are we going to do computers? And she thought that it would be a good idea to try to dye her own eyes blue and she blinded herself for two days. And I think I think that speaks volumes about her competency. And in, um, and then in the end... What <laughs> in, in the end, they ended up ro- rotoscoping the eyes, which means that someone had to go through each frame of the movie and by hand, because this was 1984, color in blue to the eyes. But um, yeah, she she blinded herself for two days because she thought it would be interesting to see if they she could dye someone's eyes blue. And I suppose that it's good that she only tried herself out as the, uh, the, the, as the, the test subject for such a, for such an idea. Um, but I think there was a lot of, um, I think that she, I, I I don't think she worked well with David Lynch. I think that actually Dino probably would have worked better with him one-on-one given some of the other movies that he's, um, produced uh prior to dune and after dune um so he has nothing to say but good things about them and i believe they were involved with blue velvet afterwards yes they helped they did help fund yeah. blue velvet I mean, you, know, you, you know he 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 didn't want any hard feelings whatsoever between him and and the Dolores's father and daughter uh from from my understanding from from what he said in interviews himself actually and so they had a good rapport and then they did work with him with blue velvet afterwards where he was able to um really really kind of regroup and and put out a product that was of his own genius basically and they were they they were they were there to help him with that so I think they kind of recognized that they, they, they recognized the talent of Lynch, which is why they wanted him initially. And I think after what happened with Dune, they kind of recognized the man's still a very gifted director, a very gifted artist. I, I just don't think that we had the right material or mindset for it. Because I still think as as producers with people that are financially invested in the movie and hoping for a profit and hoping for something big, they were hoping for the next Star Wars. And when they didn't get that, I, I think it's it, it speaks volumes about them personally, though, that they recognize that, you know, he's it, it, this was not his fault. This wasn't David Lynch's fault. 
Um, no. no. It was, you can even say it wasn't the Dolrentes uh, family's fault either. There may have been suits behind desks that were pushing the two and a half hours, two and a half hours, two and a half hours. I mean, that's therein lies the rub, really. To a dune in two and a half hours. Well, the, I mean, it just wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't going to work. Movie theaters don't want expectations that it would somehow be franchisable. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Comparable to Star Wars. And like, I mean, I would take Dune over Star Wars any day. Like I, I never. I mean, too. Right. Not a Star Wars person, but. Yeah. I'm a Star Trek person, so that makes me, like, it's illegal for me to like Star Wars, but, like, um... <laughs> Two <yeah>. sides. <laughs> the house of Star uh, Trek. The house of the Trekkies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the house of Star Wars competing. <laughs> and I, I take my oath to my house of Star Trek very seriously. So, <laughs> but I also, it's like, I would take Dune over Star Wars any day, too, because Dune is incredible and star wars is very simplistic so it, for yeah. someone to have any sort of familiarity with the source material and think that it was going to make a new star wars is really absurd um yeah. but that the, you know that's and, and definitely sounds like some suits but yeah oh yeah absolutely because it's it happens as soon as something like um iron man happened and it became a huge hit every single comic book that marvel had was going to be adapted you know um, and it, it, it speaks, I mean, it's also a matter of movie theater chains wanting to, to cram in as many, um, showings that they can of a movie throughout the day. So they want a movie that's less than two hours. And so they can, they can have another, you know, screening time and make some more money. It's all, it's, you know, it's, it's trying to appease, um, these bottomless pockets of studio executives that that just want you know as as much as they can get. Yeah, yeah, and that's why we have a difference between like art house cinema and like big screen like Iron Man movies. Like you know, and I think that I think that trying to like I think that that the intersection of what could be considered both. Um, is that there's a lot of potential in that space, and you look at Dune as a, as one of those films that tries to be both, and in some ways fails, and in some ways really succeeds, at least in my opinion, because I love the 1984 Dune. So, um, but it's like you have to look at it in a certain way to love it, you know. And I I think it's going to be very interesting to see, like you said, what the if it's going to have the same kind of impact. Uh, on popular culture because th this director also did a movie that was very ambitious a couple of years ago that um, Blade Runner 2049 which is a, a sequel to the original cult classic Blade Runner and there was there were some pretty high expectations for that movie and it it, it did well critically but it it didn't really it didn't light up the box offices and I think it's going to be interesting to see when the new Dune comes out to see what a main what a mainstream movie going audience thinks of it. Are they going to embrace it? Are they going to 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 keep going? Are they going to go to repeat viewings? Are they going to recommend it to friends? I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens uh, in the next month or so with the uh, the new Dune. I, I, I suspect what they're betting on is that it has a blockbuster. 
draw people in and whether or not they like it doesn't matter if they bought the tickets right and so um and and so that's also my kind of hope because i know you know enough about dune to know that it isn't necessarily depending on how they adapt it it's a very complex rich deep world that has a lot of uncomfortable kinds of aspects to it and and so, you know, um, it's not, wouldn't be my first choice. It's not anything like a superhero movie. It's not anything as easily digestible as Star Wars with clear villains and heroes. At least it isn't in the whole world. I guess in the first book, you can kind of take that interpretation of it. Um, but as, as long as, like, it does well uh, in terms of box office, I think I think that, that the, maybe hopefully they'll continue to make the movies. I think it's a fine balance between marketability and then like fidelity to the Dune universe. Or it's going to end up being discussed on a a cult film show. Like, uh, you know, our our tagline is we we talk about movies that are uh, off, under, or um, ahead of the radar. And I would say that that Lynch kind of falls in the uh, ahead of the cinematic radar. I think it's a movie... That was kind of ahead of its time for its its kind of complex thinking and and depth of character, and you know also trying to make an accessible sci-fi adventure. That's a very thin line to walk. Yeah. Yep. And Dune uh, does hold that distinction. It, it is a a major blockbuster geared film that actually has a lot of artistry to it so it is at that intersection and most films that try to do both don't succeed dune probably does not succeed but it's a very noble failure uh and yeah and i i can watch it i can watch it over and over again and i i even would love to splice i mean all those if you go on YouTube, it's like deleted scene, deleted scene, deleted scene. Deleted. I would want to put those together and put them in. And, and you, is there a fan-made <laughs> edit? Yes. Of Dune that I could watch because I I would do it. I could watch Dune over and over again and get more into it. The TV the TV version, if you can find it, um, is 186 minutes, and it actually yeah. one of the most notable changes is that there is no opening. Uh, Virginia Madsen five minute um, exposition dump <laughs> right at the beginning. You are so, you are so caught up. You're so stuck on that. <laughs> it's like the first thing in the movie, and you, you're just like, I can't do this. I can't do this. Well, I, can't do this. I what what <laughs> it still makes it's it, it's bad filmmaking, but it's like the. <laughs> I, it just all expository. I still like it. It just makes me laugh that halfway. You know, it feels really eighties to me. What? It is extreme. It is very oh, rep- oh, sorry. I was just gonna say it. Just it still makes me laugh that halfway through, like her face fades off the screen. You think, okay, that's the ex- the re-. and then she, her face comes back on. She's like, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you. And then there's another three minutes of exposition dump. I mean, I get why they did it, but it is, it's very kind of like, it, it, this is, it's more audio book than it is visual storytelling. <laughs> yeah. I think that, so it really, it really places it in time as in the 80s for me, because I, you know, there's some, for some reason I always like thought of that as like having like, um, 
never-ending story like the childlike princess vibe to it like princess cerulean like it kind of really fits into some aspects of those weirdo kid movies from the 80s for me so it works well, for me on that level well, um, well can, yeah can we can we talk about the closing credits with that like dude that synthesizer like it sounds like anya or something for the closing credits i can't i i was so thrown out of the world of dune once it started raining and those opening cre- and those closing credits started with that total 80s music like i i don't understand whose choice that was and that was not david lynch's i'm sure i i don't think hi- hiring toto was a is smart i mean the, the score throughout is it no, that bet he's, he's up on he's up on the worm he's got the worm all of a sudden, it turns into like total electric guitars. Yeah. No. I love that. That's my, that's like <laughs> so that's why I love this movie. It's those disparate elements. Like I think, see, that is it's like it's definitely one of my favorite films, even though it's like a really bad adaptation of Dune, because of like how like contrary these things are, and how they create this like sense of absurdity and levity that to me is like. Intoxicating, like I love it so much. <laughs> I feel you. I get that. There, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, there is a lot of humor, whether it be intentional or unintentional, to be uh, found. Yeah. Um, that girl at the end. That girl at the end is like the scariest uh, Aria. thing. Yeah, she's scary and funny. Oh, yeah, yeah. Time. It's like what? <laughs> this girl. He is the quiz that's cataract. So and then she's she's like dancing with a knife in the fire at the end. It's so good. She her she does give it. How old do you think she was when she made that? Eight or nine, probably. I don't know for sure. But yeah, yeah, that's what. But um, no, she does a, a remarkable job, and I think uh, we've almost been talking for an hour and a half. So let's just—I—I I just want to mention a couple things that um, how what Dune the movie has given us um since it came out, and um, number one, it was the first of many collaborations with um, Kyle MacLachlan and David Lynch, so. If there wasn't a Dune, there might not have been an Agent Cooper portrayed by Kyle MacLachlan or or his character. Uh, I think it's Paul in Blue Velvet. So I think that's the, that's interesting. Like you know, Dune gave us the future collaborations between the two. It also um, it influenced two Tim Burton movies to a great um, deal. The Sandworms and Beetlejuice are a direct homage to the Sandworms from Dune. And the 1989 Batman uh, suit is very similar to the body armor that they wear on the planet uh, Dune. The uh, the black, like... Yeah. Um, if you look at the... Uh, if you look at... That the design of the Batman suit from 1989 and the design of the armor in Dune, it's very, very similar. So regardless of how, you know, it was received by critics and audiences, it was a very it's it was a very influential movie 
nether, uh, you know, nonetheless, and it still gets talked to today, not just by us, but by people. And it has such a following that, you know, they're they're trying it again this year. So I, I, I kind of see that there's more there's more good than there is bad once you kind of because I think it, people people kind of um, and I did this myself kind of poo pooed it or dismissed it. Uh, when I first got into David Lynch, um, I didn't like Dune the first time I saw it uh, at all. And it's only upon uh, a couple of repeat viewings for this podcast that I really got um, to appreciate the level of craftsmanship that regardless of the, you know, of the outcome, there was still, there's still, there's still Lynchian stuff there for you to, to, um, to get into and like i said you know the pacing for me is a problem um i'm not a big fan of the first half of the movie but by that last third um it, it kind of really it redeems itself highly in my eyes and it, it, it's an incredible piece of um of movie making so if you're listening to this and you haven't seen david lynch's dune it is uh, most definitely worth a watch or two or three about the spice that I wanted to mention before that it kind of turns the the spice planet Phyllis what's the name of that planet again Bacchus yeah it turns it into kind of a galactic Afghanistan which I loved uh, so I just wanted to drop that go for it well first of all I'm jumping I, I feel you on that I think that this movie that's coming out now is going to have really strong like Afghanistan, Iraq kind of overtones. Um, uh, but um, I, I would have never picked up uh, the Dune novels if I hadn't seen the 1984 film um, because it's like it got it got Dune enough to kn- for me to know that it's something I would want to invest time in, and and that proved to be completely correct because like I've had like a year of obsession over reading the novels, um, and so if. If you like Dune, try to read the books because they're they're also available on audio, which is um, sometimes easier um, for people if they're driving around a lot or you're doing work. You can listen to them on audio. Um, but yeah, I I love both both visions visions of this universe. I'm really excited for the new movie to come out, and thank you for having me on today because I got to like talk about something I am like super nerdily passionate about. So. Well, we we could not have. Are you gonna? Are you? Go ahead. Oh, I just got to say that we could not have done this episode without you, Phyllis, because um, uh, you 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 brought wonderful insight to not only the movie but the um the actual source material, which is, which is something that um you know, I I don't like to talk about if I haven't read read myself to have someone with you that has the knowledge and passion has just been an absolute pleasure, and the um we'd love to have you on the show again sometime. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We've been looking forward to this, and this this was a lot of fun. I'm just curious: Are you going to see Dune in the theaters on the big screen? Yeah, I am yeah. not. I am not going to watch it on HBO. I want to. I am. But the other day, I was like, "Oh, it's one month till Dune!" Like, I am so excited to go see it in a theater. Um, I haven't been to a theater since the pandemic started, so I am saving it for Dune. Andrew and for Phyllis, we thank you all for joining us on this uh, journey throughout Dune. Um, 
check out our show at the uh, Cult Film Companion uh, Facebook page on Twitter. Uh, we're now available on Spotify, soon to be on YouTube, and uh, wherever podcasts are available. I'm going to try to be getting um, us on as many platforms as we can. Thanks again for joining us, everyone.